Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. just want to encourage you before we dive in, let's do what we do every week. Take a deep breath. Father God, we want you to speak to us now. Pray that your word would speak to us. And pray that we have ears to hear your gospel and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was the first weekend Matt was in Brazil. He was on um, one of those semester abroad type things. And by the age of 20, Matt had already lived on three different continents, had already was like fluent in multiple languages. He was just one of those guys who wanted to suck in every bit of culture he could find. And so on his first weekend, he was there. He was invited to go to the Metropolitan Cathedral of Brasilia, which you may know this. I mean, this is an architecturally significant building, kind of world famous building. And he heard about this opportunity. He's like, go to mass there. Sounds awesome. Yes, I want to do that. So the only problem was that Matt um, did not speak a word of Portuguese and had never been to Catholic Mass. Now, if you've never been to Catholic Mass, let me explain to you. Um, There's a lot of, like, sit, stand, kneel. And Matt was like, how am I going to know what to do next? And and his friends were like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, this is so easy. Just... um, when they sit, you sit. When the guy in front of you stands, you stand. When he kneels, you kneel. It's like, just follow the guy in front of me. Just follow. Great. So he goes in, and that works great for most of the service. The guy in front of him sits, he sits. The guy in front of him stands, he stands. The guy in front of him kneels, he kneels. And it worked great all the way to the very end of the service. But then the priest walked forward and made some announcement. And the guy in front of Matt stood, so he stood. And then the entire congregation burst into laughter. And Matt realized, we're the only two people standing right now. So he's walking out the door and he's like, what just happened? And his friend said to him, well, the priest came forward to announce the birth of a new baby and asked that the proud father would please stand. (laughs) What's Matt's problem? See, Matt Matt, um, is visiting a world he does not know. It's a culture he's never seen before in a language he does not speak. Sometimes I think that when we come to the Bible, well, I'm afraid we're a bit like Matt. 
I mean, we enter a world that we do not know, the ancient Near East, literally on the other side of the world, a culture that seems far, far away, as foreign as you could possibly get. And it's written in a language, Greek and Hebrew, a language that we do not know or speak. So, I mean, we just read a story about a man, the God-man, who's having a face-to-face conversation with Satan. I don't know about you, but I've never had that happen before. And then, and then you, you read about this. It says God led him into the wilderness to nearly starve him to death. And then he's going to let the devil tempt him three times. I, is this normal? And the temptations. Have you ever considered these temptations? Bread. Okay, like uh, I understand he's hungry, but really, bread? Like that's the best you got? Like why not a filet? Why not shady maple? I mean, what's it? Bread? And then the temptation, throw yourself off a building. He's like, no? And if you, you follow the scene through, if that's not all weird enough, the, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy three times. I mean, seriously, no one's ever done that before. I'm pretty sure that's a record. Who quotes Deuteronomy? And, and to make the whole thing so much worse, though, if you grew up in church... This sounds totally normal. Like, totally normal. Like, this is the stuff of, like, picture Bibles and flanographs. You've heard this story so many times that you're like, yeah, that's what people do. So can I just say, if, if you're new to this story today, you've never heard it before, I'm so excited. I love this story. I'm going to share it with you. But if you've heard this story and you know this story too well, I want to scrub off some of the old familiarity, and I want to suggest a new way of reading this text, which is really a very old way. So I, I, I remember still to this day the first time I really heard this text preached. Like I, I learned it in Bible school all growing up. I mean, I was a kid. I had the, the, the flannel graphs and picture Bibles, all of that. But the first time I really took this sermon in, I was in college, and it was called something triumphant, like how to overcome sin or how to succeed as a Christian. And I thought, that's what I want. I want to succeed as a Christian. I want to overcome every temptation. What do I need? And he's like, it's simple. Preacher gets up there and says, the secret to overcoming every temptation is that when Jesus was tempted, he quoted scripture. You should follow Jesus' example. When you're tempted, quote scripture and you will overcome every sin. Now, I like that sermon. I love that sermon. I went out and immediately bought those like three by five cards. And on one side, I'd put like a sin, right? I'd put lust. And on the other side, I'd put a Bible verse. Job 31.1. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Bang, I'm never going to lust again. And then I had anger, anger. James 1.20. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Boom, never going to get angry again. I, I had one for every sin I could think of. It was pride, Envy. My favorite was sloth. As the door turns on its hinges, so the sluggard turns on its bed. Boom! Never going to be slothful again. Like, I'm going to never sin again. I'm going to succeed as a Christian. And, and my plan worked. Like, I was memorizing these verses every day. I'd pour them out, pour them out, pour them out. And it worked great for about three days. About three days, it was great. And then something awful happened. I started stumbling right back into the old sins. I mean, the same old sins. 
I thought, well, that's okay. I just got the wrong verses. If I quote the right verses, then I'll get it. You know? So instead of Job 31.1, I'm going to go with 2 Corinthians 10.5. I'm going to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. If I just do that, if I just recite that, I'll never lust again. But a few days later, I found myself quoting Scripture right into sin. And I was crushed. I mean, there's one point I was like, this book doesn't work. Like the preacher said, if I just quote these scriptures, I'll overcome over every sin. I've quoted the scriptures. I've been to the Bible studies. I've, I've read all the things I can read. I've been to all the prayer meetings. I've been in a discipleship group. I've gone to every church service. I've done all the things that they've asked me to do. And I cannot overcome my sin. By my senior year at college, this just weighed on me, weighed on me, weighed on me. And by my senior year of college, I was at a terrible end. I still remember the moment where this just like broke for me. And I was actually in Bulgaria. I was in a conversation with my brother. And we were on this rooftop cafe in Bulgaria overlooking the Black Sea. And I had gone there to share Christ with Bulgarians. I was going to change the world for Christ. And I remember sitting there saying to my brother, you know... When I started on this path, I thought that I was going to change the world for Christ. He was everything to me. And now, I feel like I've got to settle for damage control. Like, how can I get through life without bringing disrepute to Jesus? So after years of struggling with this same old, same old thing... I came to realize that the Bible does have answers, but they're not the answers I expected, and that's what I want to talk about today. Today I'm going to preach the same text I heard 18 years ago now, but my message is a little bit different. My message is for those who've struggled with sin, who've been crushed, those who've wrestled and tried to do everything they could to overcome sin and failed. It's for people who failed, for moms who failed their kids, for dads who failed their families, for men who feel like they carry their shame around with them everywhere they go, for, for people who've done things that can't be undone. My message is not how to succeed as a Christian. My message is how to fail as a Christian. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, the same text that we looked at, like I said, 18 years ago. But, but um, I don't want to just jump in because I'm a little afraid we're going to be like Matt going into the cathedral here. Uh, we need to do a bit of digging and I want to understand the context. And the first and most important thing that you need to understand about Matthew chapter 4 is that it follows Matthew, Matthew chapter 1 through 3. Do you get that? It's really, really important here. I, know, I went to seminary to learn that. You should, you should be excited. If you study Matthew, seriously, if you study Matthew chapter 1 through 3, though, you're going to find that our boy Matthew is obsessively, compulsively, overwhelmingly concerned that we see Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And I don't just mean he's like the fulfillment of the prophecies. Of course he is. He's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, the laws, the rituals, the songs, the stories, the sacrifices, everything. So Matthew, when he looks at Abraham, he sees Jesus. When he looks at Moses, he sees Jesus. When he looks at King David, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus everywhere. 
In the first three chapters, Matthew's already shown us that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. He's the greater Moses. He's the king in the line of King David. He's the new Israel. Like the guy is pulling out like these chronologies and these quotes from all over the scripture saying, so this happened in order to fulfill this and this happened in order to fulfill this. That by the end of chapter 3, we realize that Matthew's not just trying to show us the life of Jesus. He's not just trying to show us Jesus. He's trying to show us how Jesus' life mirrors the life of ancient Israel. He's trying to show us how Jesus' life mirrors the life of Israel. And, and let, let, me, let me unpack this real quick. Here, here's just a few points of what I mean here. And we could go on almost all day on this. So I'll make it brief. Ancient Israel... They're under this evil king named Pharaoh, and he tries to kill all their boys. He throws them into the Nile, right? But there's one boy, one boy, the deliverer of God's people who miraculously survives, gets around that. Then God uses that deliverer to call his people out of Egypt. He miraculously intervenes. Then Israel is called out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea, which the apostle Paul will look at in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he'll say, that... That's when they were baptized. That's their baptism. They passed through the waters. They're now identified with their Savior. And then Israel then goes, after they go through the waters, they go out into the wilderness to be tested three major times. What does Matthew show us about the life of Christ? Well, when he's born, there's an evil king who tries to kill all the boys. Tries to kill all the boys. The slaughter of the innocents. Tries to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. And then God, uh, then God miraculously intervenes, hides him in Egypt. But then after Herod dies, what does God do? He comes to him and says, he's dead. And Matthew looks at that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 and says, this happened in order to fulfill what the prophet said. Out of Egypt I call my son. That he's called out of Egypt. And then the very next thing, after he's called out of Egypt, what does Jesus do in the, in the story of Matthew? Jesus then passes through the waters of baptism. He's baptized in the Jordan River. And right after he comes out of his baptism, he is now tested in the wilderness three major times. I don't know about you, but this kind of makes me think that maybe if, if each one of these points kind of mirrors each other, then maybe if we want to understand what it means that Jesus went into the wilderness to be tested three times, maybe we need to understand what Israel experienced when they went into the wilderness to be tested three times. Could Matthew possibly be pointing us back to what God did among Israelites so that we can understand what Jesus did so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to start not in Matthew, but we're going to start, we're going to lay the context in, in Exodus chapter 14 is where it begins. Actually, 16, if you're going to turn there. In Exodus chapter 14, we, we see this point right here, the big point that the, God takes the Israelites, he's, he calls them out of Egypt, and then they pass through the Red Sea. Chapter 14. Chapter 15, they're like, woohoo! Life is always going to be good. It's going to be like butterflies and cupcakes and there's rainbows everywhere. Woohoo! It's gonna be so awesome. And as soon as the party ends, where do they end up? God takes them here. Ha! And they're like, there's no food or water here. We're gonna die. And they have what I think is a reasonable question. In chapter 15, they, they ask God, why, dear God? Why? Like, did you save us just to bring us out here to kill us? Why? And God's answer in chapter 15, verse 25 is, I'm going to test you. I brought you here to see what's in your heart. I brought you here so you can see what's in your own heart. 
I'm going to test you in the wilderness. That's what this is all about. And the first major test comes in chapter 16, verse 1, and it goes like this. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin. It's not Sin. I used to think it was the desert of Sin. It's Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. The whole point of this is just to say they're now in the middle of nowhere, and it's been a long time, and they are starving to death. When you are here and there's nothing to eat, you become hungry. So here's the test. Here's the test. You've been wandering around. You're in the middle of nowhere. Are you going to trust God to provide for you? Specifically, the test will be, will you trust God for your daily bread? When you are brought to a point of starvation, will you trust God for your daily bread? And their answer, verse 2, is this. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if we had only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out to this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Will you trust God for your daily bread? And their answer is... No! No! They fail! I mean, they, they fail heroically, like with gusto here. This is, this is impressive. Like, God just saved them with a mighty hand. He parted the Red Sea for them, and they're like, no, I'm not going to trust him. So what's God do? If you remember the story, God gives them more grace. They go out the next day, and they're like, man, Who? Which is, what is that in Hebrew? And they're like, manna? It's bread, I don't know. What should we call it? Let's eat that. And so God miraculously provides bread from heaven, though they do not deserve it, though they fail. He gives them more grace. So they fail the first test, but they're just getting warmed up, right? Now that God has led them through, miraculously, through the Red Sea, he's feeding them every single day, miraculously, bread from heaven. Now that he's doing that, clearly they're going to start to trust him, right? All right, so we come to test number two, and the big test is this. Will you trust that God is with you? So surprisingly, in the book of Exodus, the primary promise, the main promise of the book of Exodus is not... I will save you. That's not the promise. The promise is, I will be with you. So if you think to uh, Moses, when God first calls Moses at the burning bush, and he shows up to Moses, he says, Moses, I want you to do this. I want you to go to Pharaoh and take my people out, say, let my people go. What does Moses say? Uh-uh, no way. And he's like, I will be with you. He says, but I'm just an old shepherd. I will be with you. But I, I can't speak like I, I can't speak in front of people. But I will be with you. I will be with you. I will fight your battles for you. I will hold your hand in this. I'm never going to leave your side. I will be with you. In fact, some scholars suggest that the name, the, the sacred name of God, Yahweh, is not I am that I am, but it would be better translated, I will be there. That his very name is a promise. I'm not going anywhere. So here's the question. God has promised this again and again. I will be with you. Will you trust me for this? I will be there. I'm on your side. I'm going to fight your battles with you. Will you trust me? Are you going to demand that I constantly have to prove to you that I'm with you? That I constantly have to prove that I'm on your side? 
Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Why do you need proof that God is not trying to kill you? And he called the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord God, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Here's the test. Will you trust God that he's with you? And how do they do? Do they trust him? No! They fail. Like he's, he's promised, he's shown them miracles in Egypt, miracles to save them. He parts the Red Sea, he feeds them with his own hand daily, with the daily bread, and still, and still, and still, life just turns a little hard, and they assume, God's not with me. He's abandoned me. They fail. And what does God do when they fail? He gives them more grace. He gives them a rock. And when Moses strikes the rock, water pours from living water. God They fail the test, but God gives them more grace. And then we just turn the next page, and there we come to chapter 19. In chapter 19, we see the Israelites are standing at the mountain, Mount Sinai, and this is the moment. Like, this is the day they've been waiting for, for 400 years. Like, this is the moment. This is the big one. God is going to make it official. He's going to enter into a covenant relationship with them. It's like a covenant, like like a wedding it's, it's like a wedding in a number of ways. It's the relationship with God is not just some legal contract. It's not an exchange of goods and services like I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It's an exchange of persons. I will be yours. You will be mine. I'm giving you myself. You give me yourself. I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is beautiful. Like what kind of God then and now, what kind of God would want to unite his life with you forever? What kind of God wants to share himself entirely with you? So Moses goes up Mount Sinai to finish the deal. And we fast forward. The end of this section is Exodus chapter 32. And it says, as the people are standing there, after all this stuff has happened, the ceremony is coming to an end. Moses is up the mountain. And it says, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down the mountain, so long there in Hebrew is literally shamefully late. Some of you know what it means to be shamefully late on Sunday mornings in church. So, (laughs) shamefully late. When the people saw that Moses was shamefully late, um, uh, here's the question. He's not coming. Moses went up there, but where's he at? Here's, Here's the test. Will you wait on God? Will you wait on God or will you look for other ways to satisfy your desire? Will you wait for God who wants to give himself entirely to you? Are you going to go looking for some cheap substitute, some other way to satisfy what God says he wants to give you? And their answer, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off your earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, these are your gods, O Israel, 
who brought you up out of Egypt. They fail horrifically. This this is not just breaking some rule. This is breaking a relationship. The prophets will say it's like a it's like a wedding. It's like a marriage. It's like a bride and groom getting ready to be married. Uh, and, and on the wedding night, one of them becomes so impatient, like, I just can't wait anymore. I just can't wait anymore, that they go out and sleep with one of their exes. It's adultery. Spiritual adultery. It's not just breaking some rule. It's breaking the very relationship that God said, I'm going to give you myself. Will you give yourself to me? And they say, No. No, we won't. We're going to go to whatever else can please us. Whatever else can do what we want it to do. We won't give ourselves to you. We won't wait for you. And God deserves to kill them all. In fact, that's a thought in that text. But he doesn't, does he? He gives them more grace. And he says, though you are faithless, I'm going to be faithful. And he gives them the tabernacle to show I am with you. Even if you don't trust me, even if you don't love me, I'm going to love you. So, so this is, this is the, the context. The three times in the wilderness they're tested, and three times they fail, and three times God gives them more grace. And then, and then you fast forward just 40 years, and at the end of that text, you're going to find that, that we come to this time where Israel's getting ready to go in the promised land, and Moses is going to preach what I would call like a scorched earth sermon. Like, here's everything you did wrong in the last 40 years. Blah! And we call that the book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> book of Deuteronomy. It's a lessons learned, and it's not good. And he's going to say to them, hey, do you remember test number three? Do you remember that time at Mount Sinai when God invited us into a covenant relationship, and a whole bunch of you decided to worship a cow instead of worshiping the living God? Do you remember that? Yeah, you failed the test. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Don't ever do that again. And he says, hey, do you remember how God promised to be with you? He promised that. He swore. But then we got to Massah, and you didn't have any water, and life was hard. So you're like, is God with us or not? You failed. You failed the test. You did not believe God. You asked him to prove himself to you. You failed. Yeah, so do not test the Lord your God as you did at Massah. Don't do that. Don't ever do that again. And do you remember, do you remember test number one, the Right off the bat when we first started. We came to that wilderness place, no food. And you're like, clearly we can't trust God with our daily bread. We need to figure it out on ourselves. You failed the test. He says, here's the whole context. Deuteronomy chapter 8. says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the, all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna to teach you. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Moses covers this. Do you remember? There were three times you were tested, three times you failed, and three times God gave you more grace. That's the story. That's the story. That's the story of what God did to leading the Israelites through this time of testing in the wilderness. And if we take that story and we remember, Matthew, Matthew, what were you saying again? You were saying something that like, just like Israel... Jesus was led by God to be tested in the wilderness. Like, show me what you mean, Matthew. 
Well, what does that mean? And he says, okay, well, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, just like the Israelites were. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was very hungry. Stop number one for the Israelites. Where were they? They were starving to death. He's just like the Israelites. And we're like, oh no, we remember what Israel did. When they were hungry, would they trust God for their daily bread? The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Will you trust God for your daily bread, Jesus? And Jesus answered them. He quotes Moses' passage in Deuteronomy from the lessons learned. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, this is what Moses said you're supposed to do, and this is what I'm going to do. He does what Israel cannot do. Where they have failed, he succeeds. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, for it is written, his angels, uh, his He will command his angels concerning you so that they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here's the question, Jesus. Will you trust that God is with you or do you need proof? Will you just trust him that he's with you? Do you really believe that God's on your side? And, or, or do you need proof? Are you going to test him in this? And Jesus answers, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. If he had finished that quote, he'd say, do not put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massah, test number two. Where they have failed, he has succeeded. Again, the devil took him to a very tall mountain and showed him a very high mountain and showed him the all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Here's the question. Will you wait on God? You're at a mountain just like they were. They were at Mount Sinai. You're at a very tall mountain. He's promising right now. You can, you can cut around God. You don't need God. Just come to me and I'm going to bow down to me and I'm going to give you everything. Will you wait on God or will you look for other ways to satisfy your desires? And Jesus said to me, said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13. And the devil came to him and the angels came and attended him. What's this story about? Is this a story, though, about how I can overcome every sin if I just try hard and follow Jesus' example? Like, if I try harder and I quote more scripture, can I overcome every temptation? Or is this a story about how the people of God could not overcome their temptation? Is this a story about how I could not overcome my sin, but Christ did it for me? Is this a story about how I can succeed or about how he succeeded when I couldn't? Can I remind you that the gospel is not, the gospel is not that if we try hard enough to follow Christ, then we can overcome every sin and temptation in our life. No matter how hard you try, That's not going to happen. Can I tell you, that is not good news. If we tell people, just follow Jesus' example and you can overcome, you can find success and victory in life, that is not good news. That's terrible news. You know why? 
Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there is no one righteous, no, not one. It's not good news. It's terrible news. If it's up to us to try harder, we will fail. The bad news is that on your own, you will never, never, never be able to do what Jesus did. The good news is you don't have to. Where we have failed, he has succeeded. How, how, how do I fail as a Christian? I want you to think of this. How do I fail like a person who trusts that where I have failed, Jesus has succeeded? Like, how do I fail as a person who actually believes that Jesus overcame every sin that I couldn't overcome? How do, how do we do that? Now, I want you to listen carefully. I'm not encouraging you to fail. I wouldn't encourage anyone. But I do want to encourage those who have failed. When we fail, we fail with the promise that where we have failed, Christ has succeeded. When we fail, we fail with the promise that we're forgiven because Christ has succeeded on our behalf. When we fail, we fail with the promise that God the Father sees us in Christ. That means all of his righteousness, all of his cleanliness, all of his victory, all of his success. God looks at us and sees that as though we're clothed in his righteousness, as though We've been washed white as snow. That when he looks at us, he says, you are my child. And I'm well pleased. When we fail, we fail with a sure hope that someday we will become like Christ and we will not have to struggle with sin anymore. What does this mean? Like practically. What does this mean for the man who's destroyed his, his family? What does this mean for the woman who's had an abortion? What does this mean for the teen struggling with an addiction? Or the woman who feels like she's carrying shame everywhere she goes? Or the man who feels like he can't escape all of his failures? Or the person who, who knows that they know that they can't undo what they've done in life? It means you're free. You're free to be a failure. There is nothing so liberating as saying, I am a miserable failure, but Christ has succeeded for me. Our failures will not define us. His success will define us. I do not have to stand before God in my failures. I have Christ's righteousness. One of my favorite, favorite theologians, a a reformer named Martin Luther, has this little clip that it was recorded from his life where he says he, he would sit in his little cell and, uh, and be tempted by the devil and the devil would come to him and point his little finger at him and say, you're a sinner. You don't deserve to be a preacher. You're not even good enough to be a Christian. How dare you even? You don't deserve any of this. And you know what he'd do? He'd say, you're right. I don't deserve any of it. But I get it all. Because Christ is my righteousness. Where I have failed, he has succeeded. And his righteousness is on my behalf. That I, by believing, by faith alone, I get his success. 
He is my manna, John chapter 6. He is my rock, 1 Corinthians 10. He is my tabernacle, John chapter 1. That I cannot outsing God's grace. That whenever I sin, there's more grace. There's more grace. I cannot undo what Christ has done for me. That For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor heights nor depths, nor anything in creation, nor any of my failures can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. It means that you're free. It means that you're free from the power of failure. So there's this great paradox in our faith that the, it's only when we realize that we cannot overcome our sins that we begin to overcome our sins. Do you follow that? Only when I scream, Romans chapter 7, I do not understand what I do, but the very thing I don't want to do, that's what the very thing I do. What a wretched man am I? Who's going to save me from this, this flesh of sin? Who? It's only when we scream that out. I cannot do it. That we can also scream Romans chapter 7, the very next verse. But thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ. The secret to my success is that it's not mine. It's his. When we surrender all of our failures to him and accept his victory on our behalf, failure loses its power over us. It can't, it can't cause fear in us. It can't define us. It can't, it can't threaten to take away our worth. It has no power over us. It cannot threaten us and it can't bend us to its will. There is a new power at work in us. The Apostle Paul says, and that's Jesus Christ in you. There's a new power compelling you. It's not the fear of failure, but it is Christ's love that compels us. And we are changed, not because of failure from the outside, but it's grace from the inside. If we believe this, how do we fail as a Christian? If we believe that where we have failed, he has succeeded, it means you're free. It means you're free to confess who you really are because you know that you're loved. It means you're free from the power of failure and it means it means you're free to taste what the Apostle Paul says it is for freedom you've been set free. That freedom that you can say, God, I give you my failure at home. Christ died for it. And I give you my failure at work because Christ died for it. And I give you my failed relationships because Christ died for it. And I give you the way people have failed me because Christ died for that too. And I give you my anger and my pride and my lust because Christ died for that. And Christ not only died for that, he rose from the dead and he conquered it once and for all. So I'm free. I'm free. It's not dependent on me to overcome it because I cannot overcome my sin, but I know one who did. Some of you are not free today. Some of you have been believing the lie that I believe for years that I had to overcome my sins, that I had to become victorious and successful. Today, as we sing, as we close... I just want to encourage you, whatever your failures are, give them to God and proclaim Christ died for them 
and he defeated them because where we have failed, he has succeeded. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those in the room right now who, I pray that you just bring their failures to mind, Lord, not that they would be caught in them, but that they'd be set free from them. God, I pray that even today, people who are carrying around their failures and have not yet trusted Christ with them, that they would taste what the Apostle Paul says when he says, it is for freedom we've been set free. God, I think of those who are here right now that think, how could God use me when I'm full of doubts? How could God use me when I don't even know if he's with me? How could God use me when I've turned from him? God, I pray that you, you would give them a taste of manna, that they would see the rock. Amen.